It's Friday, October 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We have been hearing a lot about voter fraud and election fraud recently, specifically with regards to mail-in voting. While officials maintain that voting by mail is secure and there is no widespread fraud, many voters are still concerned that there are problems. Corbin Carson, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles, joins us to talk about his seven-part series examining the various types of voter fraud concerns, the data behind how often it happens, and what protections are in place to keep elections safe. Next, movie theaters across the country are struggling to survive as the pandemic has slowed down the entertainment industry. Many cinemas have been allowed to reopen, but they must operate at limited capacity, and many people are choosing not to go, in part because Hollywood is postponing big movie releases. But for small, family-owned theaters, the problems are worse. They are playing classic movies and even renting out the entire theater for showing. Alexander Gladstone, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how small movie theaters are trying to stay alive. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think they're just not finding they're not reporting it. It's not insignificant. It's hiding in plain sight. There's always fraud, period, no matter what. Ballots being sent to people who don't even know they're receiving a ballot? How can it not be rife with fraud? I'm terrified over voter fraud. I'd rather go to the booth physically. That way I know I put it in and somebody didn't alter it in any way. Joining us now is Corbin Carson, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles and Orange County. Thanks for joining us, Corbin. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thank you so much. We've been hearing a lot throughout this election cycle about voter fraud, and the president has been saying it a lot that the election is rife with fraud. There's going to be a lot of concern with mail-in ballots. When we hear from officials, they say the elections are safe. There's no need to worry. But there's a real concern on the part of voters. You spoke to a lot of voters. You spoke with several experts about the types of voter fraud concerns, the data behind all of this, how often it happens, the protections that are in place to keep elections safe. But as I mentioned, the concern is there for voters. So I want to start off with a clip of voters that you spoke to, just a quick compilation of how they feel about it. I think they're just not finding they're not reporting it. It's not insignificant. It's hiding in plain sight. There's always fraud, period, no matter what. Ballots being sent to people who don't even know they're receiving a ballot? How can it not be rife with fraud? I'm terrified over voter fraud. I'd rather go to the booth physically. That way I know I put it in and somebody didn't alter it in any way. So, Corbin, you made a seven-part series. We're going to talk about the first four parts, and next week we'll join back up with you to talk about the last three. But start us off. You took a tour with the Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, to go through the life of a ballot and and all the protections and and individual things that are put in there to help keep uh, these things up and up. During that tour, Kelly told me about that he doubled his capacity for printing and scanning in preparation for this surge of mail-in ballots. He says back in March, when it was in the primary, he noticed that he had the inclination of, what if everybody had to vote by mail-in? What if that was like nationwide, depending on how bad the virus had got? So that was his preparation. And we used Orange County, uh, the Orange County Registrar's Office as kind of an example for what a ballot might go through. And the first thing I I learned, at least in Orange County, is that they do everything, all the printing process is done in-house. So the ballot is kept in-house from the printing process all the way through to when it's mailed out. And so once it's mailed out, there's a bunch of new technologies that were mentioned, and you can listen to him explain that in clip two. There's new technology, and what it does is it sprays a barcode on the return envelope for the voter. So when a voter puts this back in the mail, they can see the full service of that ballot being tracked. 
So they can get a text message from us and says, you mailed your ballot, we received it, it's been counted. I always tell people, like, and if you're going to track your pet food coming from Amazon, why aren't you tracking your ballot? I forgot that he mentioned that Amazon part, but that was his point because I had heard so many different people talk about ballot dumping. Right. You heard that in that clip we played at the beginning constantly, ballot dumping, ballot dumping, ballot dumping. And if you think about it, because of the data and the way that they can track things now, the government, I've heard even voters tell me this, the ones that were not against voter fraud, the government has everybody down to a number, just like your ballot, yeah. just like the tracking system. So if an Amazon driver, if just to take his example a little bit further, if an Amazon driver were to have, let's say, 50 packages in his truck of varying degrees, and he decided, hey, I'm just going to leave all this stuff at my house, no one's going to notice, you and I both know the buyer's going to notice, the seller's going to notice, and Amazon's going to notice <laughs> right. because all that stuff is tracked. From what Neil Kelly was saying, they can maybe not track the individual mail carrier, but they know who has it around which area. And it goes beyond that. There's specific paper types that these ballots are printed on, watermarks, the barcodes, signature verifications. Mm -hmm. There's four layers of that. So there's a lot of protections in place to make sure that at least once you get it and turn it back in and it gets counted, that it's going to be from you. And they can get it down to the actual uh, mail carrier. They do go, I asked if it goes down to the street. He was like, no, but we know when it goes into that individual mail carrier's pouch. So if that ballot disappears, they're going to know it. And they're tracking that data, he told me, every day. So on the return side, if a bunch of ballots from one zip code or one area don't come back, that's going to be noticed in the data. That's one of those big data things that you can easily pick out. Like, hey, we're expecting X amount of ballots and all of a sudden 10, 100, 1,000 have disappeared from this area. It's obvious that this is where it came from. Another thing that I was asked a lot about was how many live ballots are out there. That was a big concern because of this record number of mail-in voting that's going on. And so the idea being the record now, I, I think we just heard the other day, was there's already almost 4 million ballots that have been received in California. And at this time, during the 2016 election, it was around 400,000. So that's an incredible increase, and that's just California. So people were concerned that they were just randomly mailing out ballots to anyone, whether they were voters, not voters, people who are not allowed to vote, et cetera. And one of the things that the registrar told me is something that everyone does across countywide is these ballots are only sent out to register voters. So there's only one voter per ballot. If you think about all the different kinds of things you hear about concerns as far as fraud, that really kills a whole lot of things. Because if you're dumping a bunch of ballots, 100 ballots, let's say, you're assuming those 100 people aren't going to vote. So maybe you get five of them, and then you, you fill them out and assuming you can get past the signature process, <laughs> right. et cetera, 95 people are going to say, hey, where's my ballot? And then when they go and ask, the registrar is going to say, you already voted. And what are 95 people going to say? No, I didn't. And that's just one of many things that comes out in this series that shows how difficult it would be to pull off something like this. One of the parts that you delved into for the series was the data on voter fraud. And really, there was a, a very minuscule amount of cases that came forward through this. And, and you led a team of people that looked into all of this. Tell us a little bit about that data. I started studying voter fraud when I was in graduate school in 2012. I led a team of reporters as part of a fellowship. And I had this idea. They were like, why don't you look into voter fraud? What it ended up being was a year-long process. We're talking thousands of public records requests, follow-ups, 
I mean, I'm getting coffee-stained responses from this pokey town in Nebraska at no voter fraud. But if you think about this for a second, I am asking for, and this was in the 2012 election, the big thing that year was the voter ID laws. The next year was the hacking with the 2016, and then this year, obviously, it's the mail-in. But in 2012, I'm sending public records requests to... Republican counties and Democrat counties. I mean, we're talking secretary of state. We're talking the attorney general. We're talking each county's election official begging for voter fraud. So if you're a Republican or a Democrat who really wants to push this narrative that there needs to be voter ID laws for people to be elected, here's your chance to send all this voter fraud to me. And we want cases, et cetera. And don't get me wrong. We got a lot. We got 2,068 cases, but it was 2,068 cases of all different types of election irregularities. So that 2,068 cases, keep in mind, was over the course of 12 years. And during that time, more than 1.2 billion votes were cast. So when you do the math, it's this very minuscule amount. And a lot of this was mistakes. It was election officials trying to stay in office and they wanted to live over here, but they were over there. That was called voter (laughs) fraud. Briefly, in the time that we have left, tell us a little bit about the difference between voter fraud and election fraud, because there's different concerns, registration fraud, double voting. I know a lot of concern for people, as you mentioned, the voter ID. Why can't you just vote with an ID? These are all the different kinds of concerns. Double voting, dead voting, campaign fraud, ballot harvesting. And the interesting part is you also have the different people doing it. Maybe it's an election official, maybe it's a campaign official, and then all the way down to the voter, which was the least one. And I know if we're running out of time, I do want to get this third clip in. It's from UC Irvine professor Rick Hassan. This is a guy that's been doing this 20 years. He talks about in one of our parts of the series how here's a nationally respected election official. And what he's about to say in this clip, it lends to the idea of what people would have to go through to try to swing an election. It would be, what is the point? Like basically you're risking years in prison for one vote. What are you getting out of it? And if you want to go ahead and play it, clip three. If you were trying to swing the presidential election, you know, you'd have to have thousands of ballots being cast and people would notice if their ballots were stolen from their mailboxes or someone was requesting them and voting them on their behalf because when they'd go to vote, they'd see that they couldn't. You do see occasional attempts to have conspiracies to swing elections with absentee ballots or other kinds of fraud, but those are hard to pull off. They happen in very small elections typically. The idea that you could pull it off in a presidential election and not be detected is not a reasonable thing to think. There are just too many protections in order to be able to do something like that. And just two quick things on this here. One, I want to make very, very clear. Every person we talk to, every law enforcement official, there's people that are looking for that for this year and and past years. Every election official, every academic, they're not saying that couple of things in small elections is not important. They're trying to catch that. No one is saying that it can't happen. I mean, we're watching the news. These people are getting double ballots in the mail, though, which is an election accident, not not fraud. These people over here, the whole system is down, et cetera. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of making sure, and none of these officials were either, of the importance of making sure that elections are secure. So they constantly were saying we're adding new securities. We're constantly upping the you know, watermarks on the ballots, et cetera, to make sure people can't get away with stuff. And they're prosecuting the people that actually do get caught. The second thing I want to mention out of what he said is think about what a person does when they're going through a crime. They're trying to get something out of it. You go steal a car. You're at least going to drive that car until they catch you. But if you do all this work, get through all those things we've talked to here and you get your one vote through. 
yay, you don't even know if your guy's going to win. That's, <laughs> right. There's no chance that you're, you don't know for sure that that one vote that you're risking, at least it's four years here in California, it's five years at other places. You're risking that for the chance of something that won't work. And keep in mind, we're talking about something that has to go through the signature checks. It has to get accepted. You would have to get a voter that didn't want to vote. I've named them. And there's several more that I'm probably forgetting right now, all for the chance of something that isn't certain. You know, there's, the outcome is not certain. I have to say that the seven-part series, what I've heard so far, is really enlightening. you got some more stuff coming up on ballot harvesting, voter intimidation, Americans losing trust in the integrity of these elections, what that all means. So we'll touch base next Mm -hmm. week to finish all this off. But if you want to catch Corbin's full series on this, go to KFIAM640.com, keyword fraud. Corbin Carson, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles and Orange County. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. The second pressure point to that is that people themselves are, even if they are legally allowed to go, if even if the queues are open, a lot of people who are regular moviegoers just don't want to go out because they're afraid of catching the virus. Joining us now is Alexander Gladstone, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Alexander. Thank you, Oscar. Great to be here. I wanted to talk about movie theaters throughout this pandemic. Obviously, we've seen some news from some of the larger chains like Regal closing down operations in the UK and the US. AMC still open, but they're saying they could run out of cash by the end of the year. I think they've started a new plan, maybe renting out whole theaters just for smaller groups, things like that. But the small movie theaters, they're really doing anything that they can to survive at this moment. You know, they're showing older movies, getting creative with selling out the theaters as well. So, Alex, tell us a little bit more about what's going on with these smaller movie theaters. I'll tell you what. So just to let you know a bit more about who I am and what I do, my beat at the Wall Street Journal is to cover financially distressed companies and industries. So you know, I don't cover any specific sector. I come in when companies are facing major legal and financial problems. And so early on in the pandemic, I identified the movie theater industry as being especially vulnerable, just given that with the contagious respiratory pandemic like COVID, obviously people aren't going to want to be sitting in a closed room with no windows side by side with a lot of other strangers. And so it's an industry that as soon as the pandemic hit, the revenues went almost every theater in the country had to close for several months. And then, you know, July, August, so it depends on the state, but theaters have been opening up again with restrictions on their capacity. So I think at this point, every state is open for business for movie theaters, but certain regions of certain states are not open. For example, New York City is not open. New York State was opened up by Governor Cuomo. He made an announcement on Saturday, but New York City is not open. And also the Los Angeles metropolitan area is also not open in California. So from what I understand is theater owners, uh, this is across the board, not just small ones, but large ones too, are they're confronting three separate pressure points or threats to their business. The first is that there are government restrictions on how many people they can accommodate. And there's also government requirements to invest in upgrading ventilation systems and installing plexiglass dividers and improving sanitation and stuff like that. 
The second pressure point to that is that people themselves, are, even if they are legally allowed to go, if, even if the theaters are open, a lot of people who are regular moviegoers just don't want to go out because they're afraid of catching the virus. And the third pressure point that impacts these theaters, and this is sort of becoming the case, uh, I guess just, just this, uh, this is more and more an issue, is that the major film studios are not releasing movies. They're delaying their movies. Let's focus yeah. on that a little bit, only because, yeah. Yeah. you know, this is why the movie theaters are open, how you get constant turnover, new people, is to come see the new flicks that are out. And we've seen it in recent uh, weeks and all, just these delays and delays, things being pushed till next year. Tenet came out. That was uh, Warner Brothers' big movie, but it just struggled, as you mentioned, without theaters in New York and Los Angeles. So other big yeah. movies have yeah. just been pushed back. Some movies have been released on digital platforms. And that thing that actually brings people to the movie theaters is just not there for them. So that's a big problem because movie theaters, they can show archive films, you know, like old, old classics. And that's what a lot of them have been doing. You know, when I, I, I spent the last week or two talking to tons of different movie theater owners, everyone from Adam Aaron, who's the CEO of AMC, which is the world's largest movie theater company, down to people who just own single screen movie theaters around the country. And, you know, a lot of these people have, you know, they when they were allowed to reopen, uh, they began showing classics like Jaws and Back to the Future and Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So they've, they've been playing these historical movies. But, you know, there are people who are going to come out, but it's not enough. Like these theaters, they need to pay their fixed costs. They need to pay their staff, their payroll. They also have to pay a licensing, licensing fee to the movie studios. So it's very hard to break even when you're limited at 25% capacity. And if even at that, not that many people want to come in. And we're getting to this critical point where they've been closed so long, as you mentioned, costs have been piling up, that we're expecting to see some of these go out of business now. So you got some yeah. stats from the National Association of Theater Owners. Really only about 5% of some theaters have shut down right now. But at the end of this month, October, and by the end of the year, they're looking at a lot higher numbers. And a lot of these uh, smaller to mid-sized theaters, you know, are looking towards Congress to see if they might pass more stimulus yeah. bills yeah. and things like that. So it's really getting into this dire part of the year for them. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a thing where, from what I understand, is that the cinemas need either one of two major things to happen. One, they need for Congress to pass a new stimulus program. Most of the theater owners that I spoke to have obtained a PPP loan, but it's not enough. They, they need another one, essentially. So they either need more federal support or they need the studios to start releasing movies again. And one key element that pretty much everyone I spoke to has said is that New York City is so critical in the movie business. And without New York City being open, movie studios don't want to release new movies. And the reason being is, one, New York is the most lucrative movie theater market in the world. And two, most of the famous film critics live in New York City. And so you know, New York is sort of the capital of show business uh, in a certain way. And so without New York City being open, most studios are not going to release. And so Governor Cuomo, he is letting pretty much all of New York State, including upstate and Long Island open, but not New York City. So it helps to some degree out people throughout the state who own movie theaters. But without New York City being open, the studios aren't going to release new movies. And so that impacts the entire movie theater 
industry across the entire country. Alexander Gladstone, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.